You're listening to the Religion and Fiction Podcast. A podcast for people interested in the intersection of the sacred and story. Offering insight, inspiration, and a bit of entertainment for the journey. I'm your host, Jeremy Bauma. A former pastor and theologian who writes stories under J.A. Bauma. Stories that offer entertaining escape as well as insightful inspiration for the journey. Today we're taking a little bit of a break from the normal course of things in the Religion and Fiction podcast to bring you a special reading of a short story from my Order of Thaddeus religious conspiracy thriller series. Stay tuned. Hey, Religious Fiction readers, this is episode 21 of the Religion and Fiction podcast. I realize it's been a few weeks since I brought you an episode. Between getting a bit under the weather and wrapping up a massive seven to eight month long writing project, uh, life sort of got in the way. (laughs) But I promise you I am course correcting beginning now with both the podcast and the short stories as well as a bunch of articles I have in mind to meet you at the intersection of the sacred and story. Beginning with today, a special reading, as I mentioned in the intro, of a short story I wrote in my religious conspiracy thriller action-adventure series, The Order of Thaddeus. I am neck-deep right now writing book 13 in this series, and I thought that I would give you a treat because the series itself is obviously top of mind as I'm bringing these characters back to life in a brand new adventure, saving the world and the church. And this short story comes from a special character who popped up in book three, Hidden Covenant, about the Ark of the Covenant. And this lady is sort of my intrepid Indiana Jones character who has a dual master's degree from UCLA in anthropology and archaeology. Her name is Naomi Torres, and she has quite the backstory. If you've read through the series, you know what I'm talking about. And she has been right along with the gang from almost the beginning on all of their adventures. And as I was writing my short story collections, both the backstories as well as Martyr's Bones, I wanted to give each of my characters their own backstory short story, but also their own adventure story in this second collection called Martyr's Bones. And this story from Naomi Torres is titled Forgotten Bones. Now, I won't spoil here in the prologue whose bones are forgotten, but you can expect the same sort of action and adventure and insight and inspiration for the journey of faith that you get from the main books in the series, as well as the other short stories I've already given you in the podcast. Now, what I can say is that Naomi Torres is at a dig site uncovering the bones of a pair of women martyrs that not enough people in the church read. Really know about. I actually wrote about the pair of forgotten martyred bones in my End Times Chronicle series that I just wrapped up my Kickstarter project for. Uh, what's fun in that series is that my main heroes go back in time to retrieve the memory of these women. Uh, but here in this 
short story, we have Naomi Torres uncovering the memory in the bones of these pair of women who stood firm in their faith unto the end, even when they were threatened with a beastly death. And here is Torres standing firm as well in this short story when an ancient threat reemerges from the shadows, as often is the case in each of my books. So I hope that you enjoy the special short story reading, once again offered through Google Artificial Intelligence for your listening pleasure in this podcast episode. And in uh, the next week, I will be sure to get back to the normal course of things sitting at the intersection of the sacred and story. In the meantime, enjoy Forgotten Bones, a Naomi Torres short story. I woke up to the smell of frying bacon and brewed coffee and smiled. It was going to be a great day for a few reasons. Eyes were still closed and for a minute I forgot where I was. But then the synapses in my brain connected the dots to remind me where I'd been holed up the past month. Tunis, Tunisia or as the ancients would have called the joint, Carthage. One of the former epicenters of ancient Christianity, apart from Antioch and Alexandria, even more than Rome during that day. That was reason enough to smile. After all, salvaging and exploring dig sites like this one was what I was born for. At least that's what my uncle Juan had said, God rest his soul. Naomita, he would say, a Torres is born for one reason and one reason alone. And what's that, Tio, I would say? To conquer. Torres means tower in Espanol. A sign of strength and security, but also surveillance and reconnaissance. The conquistadors of old would make the towers set high on hilltops their home base, allowing them to venture out and slay the dragons of the world. Then he would nuzzle me in all my teenage self, which was not at all appreciated by said teenage self, and whisper in my ear that I was made to conquer. Just like those conquistadors. He said I was a pillar of strength, of security, that I would survey and reconnoiter the world, placing my mark on it, my stamp on it, and retrieving from it what needed saving. Just like today. I only wished Tia was alive to see it all unfold. He had passed away the year before and left a massive void in my life. In many ways, and even larger than the one left by my parents when they passed as a teenager, thanks to a drunk idiota. The man had seen me through those rough years, financed my education in El Norte, had hired me onto his salvage and exploration empire, then forgave me and embraced me back into the family when I blew it all to hell. What he would do to be in my shoes now? To be sitting in a tent, baking in the morning sun in some dig site commissioned by the Order of Thaddeus in North Africa, on the cusp of unearthing something that had been buried for over 1800 years all of it just waiting to unveil its treasures and mysteries to exploring eyes and minds like mine. My smile began to fade until a hot breath of morning air gusted in through a flap of canvas to my tent that had come loose in the night, carrying with it the dueling sense of heaven, bacon and coffee. Nothing tasted better than that pair of breakfast staples, and nothing beat downing strips of fried pig and cups of joe than doing so on a dig site in the middle of North Africa. I rolled out of my cot, both feet thudding against the cold-packed earth with purpose, which was not only getting a plate of that cooking breakfast, but finishing up the final layer on unearthing whatever lay underneath. 
Stepping out into camp, the other tents arrayed around the dig site in an arc on the outskirts of town, a wide blue sky greeted me. Sun bright and angled from behind, casting the world below in a shimmering glow and heating it with care as if to confirm the wide-open possibilities that laid before me. Straight ahead was where that frying bacon and brewing coffee was coming from, a line already forming for the goods with Abraham Patel at the griddle. Piles of gravel and sand lay in bunches around a hole at the center, shovels and rakes sticking out. Sifting stations made of wood frames and strong wiry screens flanked the pit on both sides. I smiled at the sight. All of it the tools of the trade for any dirt nut like me. We had been peeling back the layers of time from a long-buried church that had been newly discovered by chance, as these things often are. Some construction company was excavating for a major suburban housing or strip mall project. Forgot which, but it didn't matter. What did was the parish from ancient Carthage they discovered that halted the project in no time flat. It was a minor church, but still one that might hold secrets Christianity could benefit from. That was the hope anyway. And today I planned to finish the job. I sauntered over and got in the grub line. Soon Abraham was handing me a tin mug filled with black coffee and smelling of heaven, then a plate piled high with fatty bacon still shimmering with grease in the morning light, along with a few flapjacks browned to a perfect hue and dripping with melted butter and syrup all staples of any dig worth its salt, and ones I promptly insisted we spring for. When I came on board with the order, and was assigned to its sepio wing, the project commissioned with taking more overt action to preserve and exploit the memory markers of the Christian faith, I insisted that bacon and pancakes and coffee were standard. Rowan Radcliffe, God rest his soul, balked at the expense, but I worked him over and ground him down to see it my way. After all, it was the least the order could do for its people, spending months isolated from the rest of civilization, getting eaten alive by any number and variety of insects in unrelenting heat and dumped on by random thunderstorm, all while under the threat of marauding terrorists looking for a quick buck through kidnapping Westerners crazy enough to pitch a tent in the middle of nowhere. So yeah, fatty bacon and syrup-soaked flapjacks and thick black coffee were definitely in order. I took a sip of the latter, humming with pleasure at the syrupy caramel notes filling my nose with delight as it hit my stomach hard, which then filled my head with caffeinated delight. The night had been a rough one, sleepless from the mosquitoes buzzing my netting on top of the anticipation from the morning. How's it hanging? I said to Abraham, who was wrapping up his kitchen duty for the morning. Stuffing a forkful of pancakes in my mouth, I added, didn't know you were handy with a skillet. Should bring you along on more of these order digs. These pancakes are amazing. He chuckled with a smile and dipped his head, then pushed thick black glasses up the bridge of his nose that reminded me of his counterpart back at Sepio HQ, Zoe Corbino. Appreciate the sentiment, Naomi, but I'm not sure I'm cut out for these types of gigs. Yeah, I suppose you're more the skinny jeans and latte drinking type enjoying the comforts of a laptop on an orange beanbag chair in a well-conditioned tech startup than dirty jeans and a t-shirt slugging it out in North Africa. There was that chuckle again. Something like that. Not that there's anything wrong with that. We need the skinny jeans and latte drinking type enjoying the comforts of a laptop on an orange beanbag chair in a well-conditioned tech startup saving the world from no uncertain doom not least of which is keeping us from getting killed off by our eventual AI overlords. I was talking too much, and probably offending the poor soul. Always got this way in the heat of a dig, especially on the cusp of the end. 
and hopefully a big get. So I shoved another forkful of pancakes into my mouth and down some coffee, eventually clearing my plate and getting to work. It was gonna be a great day. Climbing down, I could feel the sand all around me was already reverberating with the heat of the morning sun. It wasn't intense, just hot. Didn't help matters I was surrounded on all sides, but it was what it was. Which didn't matter anyway, because I was about to get my fingers dirty and grow some more calluses, peeling back the final layers from the flooring of the church, hopefully resurrecting the ancient Christian edifice for all the world to see. Took some doing, but with the tools of the trade and several piles of dirt later, I managed to clear away the final parts of the floor, revealing magical tiles of indigo and emerald and lavender, all woven into a viney pattern that spread from the center. And curiously so. A whistle up top drew my attention. It was Abraham nursing a cup of joe. Magisterial, Miss Torres. Magisterial work. Then there was an applause, the rest of the crew having come around the lip of the pit to offer their congratulation. So I took a bow, recovering from it with a chuckle, and waving them off to get back to it. What do you suppose it means? Abraham asked. I stared up at him with a furrowed brow, shielding my eyes from the morning sun. What do you mean? He gestured toward the center of the cleared flooring. The beautiful mosaic of tiles at the center. Looks like a woman about to give birth. In labor, perhaps. I spun around for a second glance at the flooring, not having noticed the patchwork of those indigo emerald violet tiles. Man sort of had a point. So I hopped up on the ladder for a bird's eye view. Astonished at what I saw. Abraham was right. A woman was prone, lying on her back with a bulging belly, hair flowing around her shoulders and sides over her pregnancy. Another woman seemed to be hovering in wait, as if ready to assist the woman with her natural duty. Cream-colored tiles bordered the mosaic, three deep, clearly highlighting the prominence of the artistic rendition. Stepping back farther up the ladder, taking in the scope of it all, it made me wonder. I climbed back down and sauntered over to the center of the mosaic, hand at my chin and eyes searching for something I intuitively knew had to exist. Because that mosaic was just large enough to house. Dios mio. A smile flashed across my face. I knew it. A break in the border. Three of the tiles had come loose. Must have been dislodged during the excavation process. And on closer inspection, it looked like a hollow space underneath. Throw me down a light, I shouted up top. A few beats later, I caught an LED penlight and was on my belly flashing its beam down at the missing tiles. Sure enough, the white spread down a narrow shaft alongside some other wall, down to the ground beneath. I breathed in the air coming up from the hole, musty yet sweet, filling my head with all sorts of victorious visions. I would be the next Indiana Jones, unearthing the Ark of the Covenant, or something like that. Even though my boss Silas said he swore he found it in Ethiopia, but whatever. There was something down there that was damn sure. And Naomi Torres was gonna fish it out. Shoving off the sandy tile floor, voices swirling in a whispering rush above, I stood and addressed my crew. Looks like this thing has turned into something entirely different than we expected. I paused a beat, the air hanging above and around with anticipation. Then I smiled, adding, we've got something buried underneath these tiles. Something big and made of stone. A cheer rose above that set my heart on fire. It was a cry of anticipation, of adventure, 
of hope, even for discovering something long lost that could offer a morsel of insight and truth. I raised both my arms trying to quiet them down, but it was no use. So I brought two fingers together and shoved them in my mouth, throwing up a quieting whistle. That did the trick. Look, I know this is exciting but we've got work to do. We're professionals, so let's get to it, alright? The crew agreed, throwing up another cheer, before everyone slipped into their assigned roles. First things first, we had to dismantle the mosaic. Wanted to preserve it as much as possible, because it was an exquisite piece of early Christian architecture. Wasn't too often you saw a pregnant woman, or any woman for that matter, lying prone on the floor of some church. A few of the crew members were experts at that sort of thing, so I let them have at it. Took some doing, but after a few hours of painstaking careful extraction, taking care to remove the original mosaic in its entirety without damaging it beyond what was necessary, we had ourselves a hole. Another hole down inside the larger one. Nestled down inside was our booty. There it was. The stone box I had anticipated. Well, not a box exactly. The side slanted at even angle down toward the bottom. The top, the crown of what I determined was a sarcophagus, angled upward as well, coming to a rectangular sort of point. It was made of simple sandstone, without any markings that I could see from the top. Which made getting the sucker out of there a top priority. I immediately got the crew to work. Not that they needed any provoking or cajoling. Unearthing something of this magnitude only came around once in a career, if that. We spent the rest of the morning setting up the rigging, using some wood beams, rope, and pulleys to construct a hoist that would raise the booty to the surface. Long steel poles were used to help in the extraction. Took some doing, but soon enough, with enough patience and elbow grease to last us a lifetime, we managed to hoist the ancient artifact out from its grave and onto the tile floor we thought was the main attraction. Boy were we wrong. There was a gasp when the dust was settled, and I immediately saw why. On the side facing me was the distinct etching of a word. A name from the look of it. Perpetua. Abraham sidled next to me, stroking weak old stubble. What do you make of it? I brought a hand to my chin as well. Not sure. Did you expect this? Nope. Then what's our next, Abraham? I shouted with interruption and sighed. Poor fella, biting his head off like that. I closed my eyes and sighed, feeling slightly bad for the outburst, but also not really because the man was crimping my style. I need space. I went back to the sarcophagus and knelt, examining the name again as well as the entire boxy object of last repose. These sorts of things were common during that era, but mostly for those of means. So this woman must have had mucho dinero. But it was larger than I would have expected. More the size of a modern coffin, or just a tad smaller than the sorts of stone edifices to the dead that were typical, which were more like a toy chest than anything. Look at this. Abraham was pointing to the other side. I hustled to his side, startling at the sight of another name. Felicitas. Two names on what appeared to be a larger-than-normal sarcophagus, buried under a mosaic at the center of what was presumably a third-century Christian church, forgotten for centuries. I stood, shaking my head and taking in a stabilizing breath, trying to clear it from the confusion and set it right. But I knew what I needed to do. I pulled out my phone. Time to call this in. Rang twice before I got Zoe Corbino, Director of Operational Support. Yeah, 
she answered curtly, the ever-present clatter of a keyboard in the backdrop, the norm for the petite Italian. Didn't take it personally in the slightest. The woman was a machine providing operational support for us sepio agents in the field, juggling a bazillion tasks. I said, Zoe, it's Naomi. What's shaking, sister? She seemed less annoyed, but the clattering kept at it. Got something here I need to run up the flagpole. Uh-oh. Don't tell me Abraham is curled up into the fetal position in his tent again. I smiled. No, Patel ain't the issue. And it seems like the guy is actually taking to life in the field. She snorted a laugh. Whatever. Anyway, is Silas around? No, sorry. He's neck deep with paperwork. Something to do with the board of directors getting their boxers in a twist. Nice visual there, Amiga. How about Celeste? She's about halfway across the Atlantic. Returning from Germany. I sighed, running a frustrated hand through my long hair that was about two weeks past due for a good washing. I bent in front of the sarcophagus again, eyeing those letters and shaking my head. Not a clue what or who Perpetua was. So I asked, well, what about Gapinski? Haas, she said with surprise. You must be desperate. Now Zoe, be nice. The lug ain't so bad. But now that you mention it, I'm not sure he's the one to help me out. What do you need? Found something in the field that's got me stumped. A sarcophagus we unearthed. Looks old. Real old. What about Victor Zaruk? He was some ecclesiastical muckety-muck in those parts for decades. An archbishop, I think. That's right, I replied. Silas's babysitter from the board of directors. Zoe laughed. Not sure you should frame him like that to either Silas or Victor. True. But you think he can help? There was more clattering, but she replied, He seems super knowledgeable about those kinds of real old things. I saw him plant himself in Silas's office earlier in the day, so I could see if he's still there. Sure. Why not? I hadn't had much time with the Archbishop, the man spending most of his time consulting Silas and offering his oversight the past year. Took a minute, but she patched me through. Miss Torres, Victor said in perfect English that still betrayed a foreign lilt. Not that I was judging or anything. I'd spent a decade in the States after living in Mexico most of my life, and I still carried the same tell that told the world around me I was not from around here. That I didn't belong. That I was an alien. Archbishop Zaruk it's, the man offered a corrective tisk, sucking in a breath before easing it out through his teeth like air escaping a balloon. No need for the honorific, Naomi. Victor is fine. I felt myself blush as I smiled. Victor then? Thanks for taking my call. The pleasure is all mine, my dear. So, what is the occasion for the honor? I took a breath, grinning to myself again at the opportunity to explain all that we had discovered. I found something, well, we found something. My team and I, we all have. Victor chuckled. A deep throaty noise that I imagined bubbling up from his generous belly and out through parted lips, his equally generous salt and pepper beard jiggling along the way. No need to be so self-effacing, my dear. I understand the project in the ancient city of Carthage to be your project. So whatever has been found is your find as far as I'm concerned. My grin widened. I liked this guy. Yes, sir. I ran a hand through my hair and turned back to the sarcophagus. Anyway, we found something. Well, several things. And what is that? asked Victor. I catalogued the remains of the ancient basilica, 
running through the dating findings and the other miscellany before getting to the real reason for the call. But the biggest get is a sarcophagus. Oh, and who do you suppose it belongs to? I knelt before it, running my free fingers across the one name. There's no supposing about it. Name chiseled on the outside reads Perpetua. Thought I heard the phone drop, the clatter was so loud, followed by a string of words in a foreign tongue. Victor, I said into my own phone. Forgive me, my dear, he replied. No worries. Perpetua, you say, Victor said with a gasp. Are you certain? From what I can tell, yeah. Why? Hers is one of the most famous persecution accounts from the third century. A young woman of considerable means who was slaughtered for her faith in Christ. Her memory has been venerated for over 1800 years, but her memory markers, that is to say, her relics were lost to history. I said, hers and the other you mean? What do you mean? There were two names listed on the sarcophagus. Two. See? Perpetua and Felicitas. The man laughed and seemed to sing out some sort of praise chorus. Is that a good thing? He chuckled again, deep and from the belly. Is it a good thing? Yes, for sure it is being a good thing. Why is that? I wondered. Because Felicitas was the woman Perpetua's slave. Took me a beat, but then I got it, my face widening into a grin and my heart picking up pace. Which would mean the likelihood this sarcophagus is anyone else, but this early church martyr is pretty slim. Exactly, my dear, Victor exclaimed. Slam dunk by my standards. And that's official anthropological, archaeological lingo for you. We both shared a laugh. My goodness is this exciting, Victor exclaimed again. You're telling me, chief. But who is this chica, anyway? I could almost see Victor lean back in his chair and prop his hands on his generous gut, getting ready to share his insights like any good teacher, religious or otherwise. Well, my dear, Perpetua was a married mother from my homeland. Libya? No, from Northern Africa. At 22 years old, she was quite the precocious young woman, but she had a father who would hurl insults at her at every stop for her Christianity. He wondered why a woman with such an upstanding upbringing, complete with titles and money and opportunity in the empire, would reduce herself to a commoner by being a Christian. You see, in those days, status and honor shame were paramount in those cultures. Interesting, I hummed. At any rate, Perpetua pointed out to her father that just as a pitcher of water could be called by no other name, so could she as well be called nothing other than a Christian. Sounds like my kind of chica, standing up to the patriarchy and all. Yours and mine both, my dear, Victor agreed with a chuckle. As you can imagine, such talk enraged him and he attacked her. But the real turning point came when the empire came for her. You mean the Roman Empire? That is correct. Christianity was barely tolerated in the empire, viewed as another sect of Judaism. But those days began to turn toward a dark chapter in the church, and she was eventually put into prison, along with a few other fellow believers and her slave Felicitas. I considered this. The plot thickens. And there we have the link between the two. He replied, that is true. And that particular local prison of Carthage was a place known for its darkness, and especially for its oppressive heat, because of all the bodies pressed in together and sitting near the equator. And that isn't even touching on the cruelty of the guards and their treatment. However, all Perpetua was concerned about was her fellow believers and her infant child. 
Go, I replied at that news. Infant? That is correct. She was nursing at the time of her imprisonment. However, thanks to answered prayer, two deacons from the local parish visited her, bearing her child that she might feed him. They even arranged for the infant to stay with her during her prison stay. Dios mio, but while this travelogue through the woman's history is interesting, can you cut to the chase? I've got a sarcophagus to open. Victor chuckled. Where are my manners? Here's where things get, well, I was going to say good, but that isn't right, is it? How about interesting? For eventually the woman and her companions, including her slave Felicitas, were tried before the local magistrate. Her father even came to plead her case, after his pleas to her in prison beforehand went unheeded. He tried to get her to recant so she could be set free, but you see, he was more concerned for the image he bore by carrying a Christian daughter in his household. He promised never to attack her again for her faith if she would just recant. But you know what she said? What? Only that which pleases God shall be done at this tribunal. For know that we are not established in our own power, but in God's. That had to piss off her papa nice and good. You could say that, Victor replied. For even during the trial, the father berated her and even tried to beat her in public until he was taken away. Yet she proudly declared, I am a Christian. And so they took her away to be fed to wild beasts. And that is what happened. Which is where the young woman named Felicitas comes in. How so, Victor? Well, you see, she was eight months pregnant, and she was beside herself that Roman law forbade the torture of women. So she and her fellow prisoners pleaded with the Lord that she might give birth, so that she could also participate in their martyrdom at the hands of wild beasts. Dios mio, you mean she wanted to get tortured at the hands of animals? Precisely. That sure is dedication to the faith. And I didn't know if I would be so bold as to offer the same prayer. He went on, three days later she gave birth to a daughter, paving the way for her to join with Perpetua and the other captives on the day of the public games to die a martyr's death. After continuing their bold proclamation of faith in Jesus Christ, refusing to recant their faith until the end, a martyr named Saturninus was the first victim. A leopard and later a bear would take his life. Saturnus, another of Perpetua's companions, was mauled by a leopard. In fact, there was so much blood that the account said it was the man's second baptism. Dios mio. Finally, a wild bull was sent upon the women, which gorged them so. Eventually, the martyrs who were dying from their injuries were lined up to have their throats cut. Each of them, including the dear new mother Felicitas, were killed first by the sword. What about Perpetua, I asked, almost in a whisper now, riveted by the story of fearlessness. Victor went silent for a few beats, and I swore I heard a few sniffles on the other end. Things went differently for Perpetua, he finally said. The executioner wanted her to have the experience, the taste of pain. So he thrust a sword into her side. At which point she cried out, the blade doing nothing but injuring her rather than kill her, for he was quite the novice at the swordsman business. So she was just standing there, spilling blood onto the dirt ground? Yes, until she took the young chap's hand and plunged the sword into her own neck, finishing the job. I shuddered. Brutal. That is one way of putting it. Another way is glorious. I twisted up my face in confusion. Glorious? Yes, my dear, for Perpetua went to her death for her faith, not merely willingly, but enthusiastically. Hers was a glorious death. Couldn't disagree with him on that one.
and to think I had discovered the remains of the woman, her relics, which would surely fetch a pretty penny on some markets. My mind suddenly drifted to that possibility, knowing that trading in such religious objects of veneration could fetch hundreds of thousands of dollars, millions even. But chasing that thought was the shaking finger of my conscience, chiding me at my greedy thoughts at such a time, especially considering the mess I'd made of my life and my uncle's the last time I'd stepped down that wicked path. No matter how far I thought I'd come in changing from my past ways, my sinful heart was all too ready to jump back in. Like a dark shadow right there behind me, nipping at my heels and beckoning me to taste from the sour spoiled well of selfishness. I sighed, annoyed at the reminder of my past. Then I threw up a prayer to Jesu Cristo, thanking him for his grace and mercy in saving me from my past and for the opportunity to find his faithful martyr's bones for the sake of restoring the church's memory markers of these glorious, forgotten women. Naomi, Victor said, are you still there? I went to answer when a rat-a-tat-tat sliced through the afternoon air, followed close by the whine of engines and the screams of frightened men and women. That didn't sound good. K. N. El Mundo. What was that sound, Miss Torres? Victor said on a shaky breath. What is going on? Had not a clue. Until I did. Naomi? Victor said again, annoyed now as much as sounding worried. I replied, sorry, but I've gotta go. Sounds like hostels just piled into camp, chief. Not sure what you can do about it, but let Silas know and call in the Marines. Without waiting for a reply, I ended the call then scrambled up the ladder to meet our guests, my Sig Sauer burning at the small of my back beneath my shirt. Knew it wasn't time to break it out for action. Not yet, anyway. But soon enough. Because whoever these idiotas were, they weren't getting a jump on me and my crew. Or my relics. Reaching the top, my stomach sank back down the ladder. Three vehicles, open-top military-grade Hummers, skidded to a stop at the one open end of the encampment without any tents, powdery brown dust thrown up and shielding my view of the perps. My crew were fleeing the hostels, arms raised above their heads and faces strained with fright. Several more rat-a-tat-tats were thrown into the air, and men started pouring from the vehicles. A dozen or more. All dark and bronzed, wearing black and tan shirts and pants, bulging arms carrying heavy weapons and they were making for my people, rattling off more rat-a-tat-tats high into the air and scaring the living daylights out of them. I went to whip out my own piece and lunge for them, jump into the fray of things, when Abraham clenched my arm. Hand was curled around the butt of my sig still wedged at my back, and he held it tight. Not now, he whispered. Wait for the moment. I almost bit back a nasty response about me outranking him, and no way in hell would I let some backwater terrorist get the jump on my dig site. But thought the better of it. Abraham was right. What was I gonna do anyway, outmanned and outgunned? Two of the others in my crew had weapons stowed in their tents for security, lot of good that did us, but there was no way they were fishing them out now. So it was me against the dozen whack jobs who just rolled up on us, sporting enough machinery and firepower to know they weren't local talent showing off. This was serious. And it was about to get real. By now, they had rounded everyone into a bunched group at the center, flanked on all sides by the hostels. The opening of a door caught my attention, back at the three vehicles. A man stepped out from the center hummer. Tall and dark-skinned, with wide shoulders and long dreadlocks piled high on the top of his head like a beehive from hell. And that's when it hit me. I knew this man. Aurelius Chuke. 
which meant I knew this group, who they were with, who they were working for. Noose. Two of the goons in black shirts and tan pants hustled toward me, both bearing AK-47s and looking more than ready to use them. One of the men grabbed me by the wrist and yanked me forward. Abraham protested, but I put out a hand to shut him up, even as I put out another to keep from stumbling to the ground. Didn't work. I hit the packed earth hard, my mouth filling with gritty dust, some of it getting up my nose. Knees hurt like a mother too, but that didn't matter. Couldn't show weakness. Not when it was all on the line. Easy, easy. Unbreakable, Abraham complained from behind. I went to get up when a short squat soldier jammed that damn Russian-made assault rifle in my ribs and a familiar laugh was thrown my way, deep from the gut, at my expense. The large man I recalled from a year ago of packed muscle and full military fatigues, sauntered over, clearly distinguished from his soldier's brown makeshift uniforms. His head was bulbous, as if it were merely an extension of his neck. Dreadlocks like cords of rope twisted around his head up into a hive that meant business and hung down to his shoulders and beyond the length of his back. The man was African, sub-Saharan, with dark ebony skin and haunting eyes set behind a flat nose. A jagged scar ran down the side of his face, from his right ear to the corner of his mouth, and his skin was similarly pockmarked with signs of violence. Me and the rest of Sepio had run into him and his crew at a dig site very similar to this one months ago had to have been a year now. He'd taken an important archaeological find relating to Emperor Constantine that turned out to be one piece of a larger confessional code that ended up turning out very different than any of them thought. Now he was back. On my dig. Again. Presumably to steal more goods I had just uncovered that could be crucial for preserving the memory of the church's martyrs, inspiring millions of faithful Christians with their story of persecution and death. Not on your life, idiota. Chuke removed a pair of aviator sunglasses and wiped the lenses with a white cloth, flaring his nostrils before smiling widely, a gold tooth gleaming from the front. Naomi Torres, we meet again. His greeting was accented by the region's tongue with a throaty baritone. Colonel Goldtooth was dressed in military garb. However, his shoulders were clear of patches or any other official accoutrements, so he wasn't really military. Just play-acting. He had donned his sunglasses again, his face set as flint toward the hole behind me. I went to stand, not at all okay with the man looming over me and making a go at making a show of confidence. When I was thrown back down by that short squat mutt, his AK-47 barrel digging back into my ribs. I cried out, couldn't help it. The men around laughed, and Chuke chuckled along. My ears burned as heat raced up the back of my neck at the indignation. My right ribs screamed in pain. The idiota probably broke two or three, but I wouldn't give them the satisfaction of controlling me. So I went to all fours, then to my knees. Muttman raised his rifle again, getting ready to jab me a second time, possibly right upside the head, when Chuke intervened. Spoke some local language gibberish to the fella before he slunk away. Aurelius Chuke, I said. We meet again. His grin widened. The one and only. The new swack job nodded at me, holding out an open palm to help me stand. I took one look at it before hawking a good-sized loogie at it and rising to my feet on my own. That didn't go over well. Before I knew it, I was back on the ground, one side of my face blooming with pain. Worried my eye would swell shut and nose would burst with blood from the smack, but both seemed to hold steady. 
You insolent fool, he growled. I wouldn't be so daring, Miss Torres. Not with the lives of your precious crew members on the line. I looked up to find the goons rounding them up. And Muttman with his AK-47 jammed into Abraham's back. Poor fellow was whimpering something fierce. Everyone was. I muttered a curse in my native tongue under my breath and made a decision I hoped I didn't regret. Putting those moves I'd learned while serving in the Israeli Defense Force way back when, Mama having been a native-born Israeli before marrying Papa, and I taking up the charge to serve at 18, in one move I whipped out the Sig Sauer still nestled at my back and pointed it at Colonel Goldtooth's face. That got their attention. Pronto. All weapons seemed to train on me as one. Muttman even let go of Abraham, who scurried away to the other crew members and pleaded with me to surrender. Chuke just laughed, the man folding his arms and grinning at me, that golden tooth glinting again in the sunlight. Impressive, Miss Torres. But let's dispense with the Theatrix and put away the weapon. You're outgunned and outmanned. Surely you know you'd lose in whatever fight you put up. I tightened my grip, aiming for dead center tooth. Yeah, well, at least I'd blow that damn tooth clear through the back of your skull. Got him to flare his nostrils at that one. And drop his arms in a huff, the man narrowing his eyes at me and the golden tooth disappearing in a closed-mouth grimace. Then he raised an arm and snapped his fingers, calling something out in his native tongue until a man appeared. Dragging Abraham by his arm. Surrender now, Chuke said, or I blow his head off. My breath went out from me, but I didn't give up. Tightened my grip and focused on that bulbous head of that noose whack job, instead of the Indian man about to lose it. Perhaps, literally. I swallowed, answering, You wouldn't dare. Not with your life in my hands. You shoot him, I. Before I could finish, Chuke was withdrawing a pistol and discharging it, sending Abraham crying out and to the ground clutching his leg. I didn't return the favor. Instead, I froze. Stiff at the sight of blood oozing between his fingers down onto the pale brown dusty ground, and the sound of his moans. Flesh wound Ms. Torres, Chuke said, refocusing my attention to the bastard. Next time he won't be so lucky. Now be a good girl and surrender. Checkmate. I let go of the butt of my pistol, and it swung loose at the trigger guard on my finger. He grinned. Good girl. Muttman promptly relieved me of my weapon and grabbed my arm, yanking me toward Colonel Goldtooth. That is not being necessary. He said something in his native tongue and the goon loosened his grip, sauntering to Chuke's side. What do you want, bastardo? I growled, neck hot from the heat of the day and the heat of the moment. I am not speaking Spanish, but I take that as an insult. He pointed to the hole in the ground. We've come for whatever it is you've uncovered below. Down below, I asked with surprise. Nothing but a dusty old church floor. He replied, and a box of ancient bone relics from what I understand. I let a gasp seep, disbelieving Noose could have already heard of our discovery. Chuke chuckled, that annoying tooth gleaming at me with mocking pride. Don't be so surprised, Miss Torres. By now you should know Noose sees all, hears all, knows all. Besides, you didn't imagine this level of archaeological excavation would escape our notice, now did you? I went to throw back a smart-ass retort but clenched my jaw tight. K. Pesadilla. This is like the Emperor Code nightmare all over again, when the same clown rolled up and ran off with a key piece of church history. But what could I do? Drawing out his pistol again, Chuke motioned toward the ladder leading down to the bottom of the hole. Let's move. 
I believe the bones of a certain Carthaginian martyr await. I hesitated, but then saw Abraham lying on the ground, blood soaking the dirt beneath, though it looked like he had staunched it with a torn shirt. So I relented, climbing around and slumping down the steps below, drilling the man with eyes I wished could kill. Didn't take long before I reached the bottom, and Colonel Goldtooth and Muttman were joining in on the fun. Reaching the bottom, Chu Kei whistled from behind, walking out in front and eyeing the sarcophagus before kneeling before it. Quite the specimen of church history. Perpetua. I know the story well. I snorted a laugh and crossed my arms. Yeah, right. And what's your interest in it, anyway? Not like it's part of some grand religious conspiracy to bring down the church. Perhaps not some conspiracy to bring down the church, but certainly one chink in her memory to protect her. How so? He said, a brave woman. A brave mother, no less, willingly dying for her faith. Such heroism would wreak havoc with our plans. What plans? There was that tooth again, at the front of that grin. Time will tell. All you need to know is that allowing these relics to see the light of media attention would infuse too many with too much inspiration. And inspiration to faith is the last thing Noose needs. I didn't entirely understand what he was talking about, what plans he was speaking of, and all. Silas sure might. But what I did get was how such a witness could inspire others to offer the same devotion to Christ in the face of persecution. Enough talk. Chuke waved his pistol toward the stone box. Open it. Everything within me wanted to rush the man. But I relented, knowing my stupid act would get everyone else above killed. Grabbing a trowel and a hammer, I got to work loosening the mortar that had sealed the lid shut. Took some doing, chipping it piece by piece in order to still maintain the integrity of the box. After all, it was still a precious piece of history. My inner archaeologist couldn't let it go. Soon I was finished, and we were good to go. Setting the tools of the trade down on the tile floor, I grabbed one side and looked at Chuke. Help me with this, would you? Grab the other side and listen to my instructions. He threw me a grin, but obliged. Yes, ma'am. Instructing him on how to wiggle the lid back and forth, we eventually managed to wrench it free from its hold. Moment of truth, Chuke said, eyes wide with anticipation. I nodded and gave the final heave that sent it to the floor. My stomach leapt with anticipation as the lid slid down and away. Right before it sank to the ground beneath. I muttered a curse under my breath. Empty? Chuke said with disbelief, leaning over the stone box and gripping its sides with open-mouthed surprise. I leaned in for a closer look, but he was right. Nada. I leaned back and shook my head. Lost to history, I suppose. Not a surprise, given the age of the relics. Thieves could have taken them half a millennium ago, even a millennium ago. I sighed. Partly in relief, partly in equal disbelief, disappointment even. No way would I have wanted something as precious as the relics of Perpetua and Felicitas to fall into the hands of Noose. But damn, it would have been nice for the church to have their bones as memory markers for their witness to their faith in Christ unto death. Chuke stiffened, shaking his head with a chuckle. As empty as the memory it supposedly held. Then he turned and sauntered back to the ladder. I said what, that's it? Just like that, you're gone. He shrugged and called back, we came for the relics. Nothing more. Motioning to Muttman, he climbed the ladder as his goon trained his rifle on me. Then he turned around and shouted down, that golden tooth glinting at me again, but I'm sure we'll meet again soon, Miss Torres.
Until then, he threw me a wave and spun around from view, Muttman hustling up the ladder after him. The sound of car doors opening and engines roaring to life filtered down to me from above as I stared at the sarcophagus again, catching my breath from what had just went down, but also still disbelieving the truth of the matter. Empty. Just an oversized box filled with nothing but dust and stale air. Which was a shame. Because any chica who would stand up to the powers that be and lay down her life for her faith without question, she was the type whose memory needed to be preserved needed to be broadcasted for all the world to hear. As they drove away, I stared at the empty box. A box with at least the names of two women that memorialized their testimony of wholehearted devotion to Jesucristo. While their bones had gone missing, their memory sure hadn't. And I pledged to make it known. These women would no longer be forgotten. Not only by sharing my discovery and their story. Their martyr's memory would live on in and through me through my life and my witness, even unto death. Thanks again for listening to the Religion and Fiction podcast, featuring a special short story reading of Forgotten Bones, a Naomi Torres story. This is from a collection of original short stories from my religious conspiracy action-adventure thriller series, Order of Thaddeus. Martyr's Bones is available everywhere books are sold, so grab a fresh new read today. Catch you next week. Until then, happy reading.